I think that most people are either um, beach people or mountain people. Um, what I mean by that is uh, a beach person is someone who really loves the ocean, and that's the place they most encounter the, the bigness and the grandeur and the majesty of God is in the ocean and its power and just amazingness. And some people are mountain people, and they most encounter uh, the, the power and the grandeur of God and, and just mountaintop, literal mountain spaces, right? Uh, and I like both, but I'm definitely a mountain person, right? And for me, it's always been the case that I have felt like I encountered God and, and felt God and saw God most when I was in like literal mountain spaces. So uh, this past summer in March, in the very beginning of June, a couple of friends and I went to Rocky, Nash, Rocky Mountain National Park and did some hiking, and it was just an incredible experience because everywhere you went, uh, you felt like you could see and feel the presence of God. Now, I brought a, a few pictures from that trip um, just so you get a little bit of sense of how amazing it was. Um, can we just go through those? So uh, you can barely see my buddy Josh down there at the bottom, but there were all these incredible mountain lakes that we would hike up to, which were breathtaking. You can do the next one. Um, and it was cold, and uh, I was not well-dressed for that, but that's okay. Um, just, just gorgeous spaces. That looks like a painting, right? I mean, that is crazy how… Uh, anyway, just took my breath away. Uh, and then we had like the most amazing rainbow that I have ever seen that stretched um, from mountaintop to mountaintop while we were there. It was just incredible. Uh, every, thanks. Everywhere we went, I just walked away feeling like, wow, like what kind of God could make a space this gorgeous, this amazing, this special, this sacred? Uh, I, I think mountains have that uh, experience on me because, um, well, they are big and amazing and gorgeous and beautiful, but also because, boy, there's just so many literal mountaintop stories in the Bible, right? In the Bible, again and again, people just go up on mountains all the time, and it's where they go to meet God. Uh, this starts at the very beginning of Scripture. Um, Eden is a garden placed on a mountaintop, right? It is supposed to be literally uh, a space where the realm of God and the realm of humans interact, right, where they overlap. And again and again throughout Scripture, following in that model, we have all of these places where people go up on mountains and they have these incredible interactions with God. The most famous one, of course, is Mount Sinai. Both of our Scriptures today talk a little bit in reference to Moses' encounter with God on Mount Sinai. Um, but all of these are these moments of, of deep connection with God. And, and this is really what Jesus offers the disciples. Actually, it's what God offers Elijah too, are these deep connection moments with God. I think this is the first time where the disciples get to see Jesus as He really is, right? Not disguised um, as in human form, but like in His divinity, in His majesty, they see Him and it is just breathtaking. Now, you don't have to be on a mountaintop to have a place of deep connection with God. You don't have to be literally up high. I mean, I realize that God is not up, right? We don't have to be literally up high to have that experience of feeling close to God. Maybe you've had a mountaintop experience um, somewhere else in your life. Maybe you've had a mountaintop experience at a youth conference. Uh, for me, it was Montreat, or maybe it's Great Escape. Maybe you've had a, a mountaintop experience on a mission trip like uh, Nicaragua or Haiti or Milwaukee or Chicago or Camp Luther or Spencer Lake. Maybe you've had that mountaintop experience, that sense of deep connection with God on the walk to Emmaus. Maybe it's 
something that happens in this room for you. Um, maybe it's an experience that happens when you're with your family. Maybe there's a person in your life. Um, when you're with them, you just feel like you're closer to Christ. I think God has this design that He gives us these glimpses um, of these incredible mountaintop, deep connection moments. We never get as much as we want, right? But He gives us just a little bit, just enough to understand kind of what's coming. Uh, And so, uh, this is a story about Jesus giving that glimpse to Peter and James and John who are desperately in need of it because they are still not getting it, right? And they have this opportunity to see Jesus, and He's all glowy and majestic, and then Elijah and Moses show up. We'll talk about that in a second. Uh, And then their response is, hey, let's build some, some tents. Let's build some shanties. Let's just stay here for a while. Now, uh, if you know anything about the Gospel of Mark, you can assume that when the disciples say it, they're probably wrong, right? I mean, they, they are batting like zero for a thousand at this point. Uh, and so, um, we immediately discover the disciples are wrong, right? The disciples are not supposed to stay on this mountain. And we get all kinds of clues about this, right? We hear that they're terrified, that are their mind, they don't know what they're saying. Um, one, one clue that they're wrong, my favorite one actually, in verse 5, it says that Peter said to him, but it doesn't actually say Peter said to him. It actually says Peter answered him, which is weird because no one's talking to Peter, right? I mean, Jesus and Elijah and Moses are having a conversation, and Peter answers them like, oh, hey, I'm sure you guys are really… This is like something I do a lot in my life as I'm always assuming you're talking to me, right, family? Yeah, my wife is nodding. Um, so, uh, we, we get all these clues, right, that, that they're, they're not getting it, um, they're not getting the message. So, here's what they're getting wrong, and then let's talk about um, how we're supposed to get it right. Uh, what they're getting wrong, simply, is that they think this is the end, right? They think it's the end. I mean, Elijah and Moses are both figures that are supposed to show up at the end. Go read Malachi chapter 4, the last chapter of the Old Testament. Um, there is this idea that Elijah will come back. Moses uh, is supposed to be replaced by a later prophet, but Elijah is supposed to come back in some fashion. Both of them are end times figures. When they show up, the disciples are like, we're done, right? Like, it's the end. Here comes the kingdom. Let's just stay here and ride it out. It's going to be awesome on the mountain. What they are forgetting, what the voice of God says to them from the cloud, is they're forgetting what Jesus has said, right? Listen to Him. Jesus literally just said to them, I have to suffer and die first. I have to be betrayed. I have to be raised again on the third day. And so, what they want, what we often all want, is they want to enjoy the mountaintop experience with God without having to deal with all the regular, ordinary, like valley stuff, right? They don't want to go back to regular life. They just want to stay up there with God. And I get this, right? I mean, I get this. Um, I've had this experience plenty of times. I remember my first mission trip was to a place called Nuevo Laredo, um, Mexico, just across the border from Laredo, Texas. I was a freshman in college, and I was there with a whole bunch of other college students, and it was just this incredible experience. Some of them I knew well beforehand. Some of them we became friends with on this like seven, eight-day week but by the end of that week, we were sitting in a courtyard in this church in, in Nuevo Laredo, and everybody else has gone to bed, and there's like 15 of us college students up playing guitar and singing worship songs. And um, in a break in that moment, we said, we don't want to go. Like, we just like to stay here. This is like one of the most meaningful experiences of our lives. We feel close to each other. We feel close to God. We'd like to just stay here. That's what Moses 
uh, and Elijah make Peter and James and John want, right? They just want to stay here. Here's the problem. Uh, There is a temptation. It's the temptation for Christians to get in our little Christian bubble and just ignore the world and be safe with Jesus, right? The safety things come back. But it's just this, I just want to be, I just want to be caught up. I want to be so enwrapped in the presence of God that I can stay here and ignore the rest of the world forever. And um, this can be um, really, really wonderful for a while, but eventually it begins to lead us to stop listening to Jesus. Um, there's, a, there's a comedian I really love named Michael Jr., and um, Michael Jr. has a bit he, that I'm going to massacre um, where he talks about what it means to be uh, a Christian. He says some people are Christians, just regular Christians, we love them. Some people are saved, and some people are oversaved. And maybe you know somebody who's oversaved. Don't look at them right now. Um, but maybe you know somebody who's oversaved. He says somebody who's oversaved is so caught up in their Christian bubble um, that they almost can't have a regular conversation with you. You say, hey, I'm kind of thirsty. Let's go get a soda. And they say, I'm thirsty too. Thirsty for the Lord. Like, All right, yeah, I get it, but I just want a soda. Or you say, hey, I lost my, my car keys. Can you help me look for them? And they say, you need the keys to the kingdom. And you say, well, I didn't drive a kingdom. I drove a Toyota, so I really need the keys to the Toyota. Um, He says he has a family member who is oversaved. I think it's an aunt of his. And one time they were watching Extreme Makeover Home Edition and a show where people, you know, have a crisis and they get a new house. And uh, at the beginning of the show, she'd never seen it before, um, she got so upset. She said, we got to stop this show. we got to pray for this family because they are in crisis right now. He said, okay. So she started praying, Lord, please help this family get a new house. Lord, please help this family get a new house. And he says, uh, they're going to get a new house. She says, that's right. You just got to believe. He said, no, you just got to have cable, right? Like, <laughs> they're going to get a new house. There is a temptation for us Uh, to say, hey, I just want to be on the mountain. I don't want to engage with the world anymore. I don't want to engage with regular life. I don't want to engage with regular people. Just want to do my stuff, right? Because I'm tired of the world. This is Elijah's story. Uh, Elijah has been in the world. He's been working for Jesus. He's exhausted. He's terrified. He's worn out. He literally runs away from his regular life. He he literally goes to Mount Sinai, right? He, he says, I don't want a mountaintop experience. I want the mountaintop experience. So he goes all the way to Mount Sinai. He climbs the mountain. There is God. He talks to God on Mount Sinai like he expects. And what does God say? Go back home, right? Get back to work. God says, hey, yeah, absolutely. You deserve a little break. Absolutely. You need some time away with me. Um, but this is not where I want you to stay, I want you to be engaged in my work. The reason that you come to the mountain is that you have something to take to the people in the valley. Uh, One of my favorite books is, uh, I I love the Harry Potter books. And um, by the way, this book is like, I don't know, it's like 20 years old. So spoiler alert for a 20-year-old book, it's your fault if you haven't read it, okay? Um, So uh, at the end of the Harry Potter series, um, there's a moment, Harry kind of represents Jesus. There's a moment where Jesus, uh, Harry, lays down his life to save the lives of his friends. And after he does that, um, he goes to uh, a place that looks like a train station. It's King's Cross. Come on, people. It's King's Cross, right? It's it's King's Cross, King's train station in England. Um, There's no one there. 
It's like all misty and cloudy. And then Dumbledore shows up. And Dumbledore is sort of like the God, the Father figure who always knows everything. Uh, They have this um, incredible conversation. And then at the end of this conversation at King's Cross, um, uh, the author writes, "Um, The realization of what would happen next settled gradually over Harry in the long minutes like softly falling snow. I've got to go back, haven't I? That is up to you. I've got a choice. Oh, yes. Dumbledore smiled at him. We are in King's Cross, you say? I think that if you decided not to go back, you would be able to, let's say, board a train. And where would it take me? On, Dumbledore said simply. Silence again. Voldemort, that's like the devil. Voldemort's got the Elder Wand. True, Voldemort has the Elder Wand. But you want me to go back? I think, said Dumbledore, that if you choose to return, there is a chance he may be finished for good. I cannot promise it, but I know this, Harry, that you have less to fear from returning here than he does. Harry nodded and sighed. Leaving this place would not be nearly as hard as walking into the forest had been, but it was warm and light and peaceful here, and he knew that he was heading back to pain and to the fear of more loss. He stood up, and Dumbledore did the same, and they looked for a long moment into each other's faces. Tell me one last thing, said Harry. Is this real, or has this been happening inside my head? Dumbledore beamed at him, and his voice sounded loud and strong in Harry's ears, even though the bright mist was descending again, obscuring his figure. Of course it is happening inside your head, Harry, but why on earth should that mean it is not real? This is the moment where Harry decides to go back, right? to go back Um, literally into the world. Um, But it reminds me of the decision that Jesus makes, right? To say, hey, I'm going to leave heaven and come to earth, right? There is no more mountaintop experience than heaven itself. And Jesus says, no, like, I want to take this experience into the valley, right? I want the people down there to come to know the God up here, So, um, our temptation uh, to live in this little bubble of Christendom and and safeness and mountaintop experience is a temptation away from the will of God because Jesus doesn't do that, right? Jesus doesn't forget the world on the mountain. He tries to bring the world to the one He met on the mountain. That's the work of the disciples. That's the work for us today. Okay, so our first challenge, um, as simple as it is, uh, is to not be trapped in the bubble of our little mountaintop experience, right, of our spiritual lives to forget the world around us. There's actually a a second and opposite challenge that happens in this story, and it's set up so beautifully and clearly that I've got to think this is Mark's intention. Because as they come off the mountain, right, I mean, they, they come down from Jesus being transfigured and His clothes glowing and Mount, uh, Elijah and Moses and a cloud and the voice of God. And the first thing that happens after they get off the mountain is there is a demon-possessed child that they have to deal with, right? And there are crowds gathered and there are the enemies of Jesus, the religious leaders and the spiritual enemies, the demons that are all kind of gathering together. There's this huge shift. And Jesus comes up and He says, what's going on? And he hears the story, and, and, and he has a, a really, like, frustrated response. Did you notice his response? He said, you know, you faithless generation, how long must I put up with you? Right. Uh, and then he solves the problem. He defeats the demon. Uh, and then the disciples get together with him afterwards, and they say, hey, we couldn't get rid of this demon. What did we do wrong? And Jesus says, this kind only comes out by prayer. 
which makes me want to know, what the heck were they doing? Right? Like, your first thought wasn't, let's pray about this. There's a demon-possessed child. Like, you didn't think, hey, maybe prayer is one of the things we should consider doing. Uh, I, I love this moment, and I, I, I echo Jesus' frustration um, because uh, I have it with myself, because I think the, the second great temptation in this passage, um, we are tempted to live in kind of a bubble of spirituality without the world, and then we leave and we go into a bubble of the world without the Spirit, right? We go and we say, hey, you know what? I'm just going to have a prayerless faith. I'm going to believe in God, but it's not going to affect what I do on a regular basis, and I'm certainly not going to engage in a conversation with God on a regular basis, even when like really obvious things come up, like demon-possessed kids. I'm just going to trust that like somehow I'll put my head down and I'll work hard, and with my abilities and my giftedness, I can solve everything. And I think this is um, such I mean, I think it's ironic that it happens on such an extreme level with the disciples, but I think this is like a core challenge for all Christians, right? I think all of us are tempted uh, to say, hey, I'm just so busy. I'm busy doing the right stuff. I'm busy taking care of my family, and I'm busy um, taking care of the sick or the poor or those who are in need, and I'm doing my job, and I'm, I'm caring for people in really great ways, and I'm so busy that I just forget about the mountaintop experience I just had, right? I forget about the fact that there is this God who put this all together, who has sent me down into this valley to be His partner. And I start thinking, boy, it's all on me. It's all on me. Samuel Chadwick says, the one concern of the devil is to keep Christians from praying. The devil fears nothing from prayerless studies, prayerless work, prayerless religion. The devil laughs at our toil, mocks our wisdom, but trembles when we pray. I, I had an experience two summers ago of being at a silent retreat, which was really incredible, at a monastery in Chicago, Monastery of the Holy Cross. Uh, it's a Benedictine monastery, and so they get together seven times a day, and they have these formal prayers they do in their worship space. And the first one is like 3 a.m., and the last one is like 7 or 8 p.m. Uh, and I did my very best to attend all of those worship experiences except for the 3 a.m. one, which I never made it to. Um, what was striking um, was it, it, it didn't just force me to pray in those structured moments. I found myself praying like a lot in between them as well. Partly there was no one else to talk to, but partly it was almost like the more I did it, the more I wanted to do it. And it made me think when I came back, uh, how much time goes between my prayers? How much time passes between my prayers? And, I mean, I say prayers in the morning when I do my daily devotions, and like I meet with people in the hospital and I say prayers, and, but like how much time passes between me praying? And I wonder um, if um, even me as a pastor, like working in a church, like I wonder how often I'm trying to live a prayerless faith. Uh, I recognize that there are all of um, these um, cures that we want to move past from, right? And I get it. Like, I, I know people who have dealt with um, significant mental illness or brain illness, and um, they've been on medication or they've been in therapy, um, and there's a goal to, like, like, get healthy 
and graduate from therapy, right, or graduate from treatment. That's a wonderful goal. I love it. And, and I know people um, who have said, hey, um, you know, I, I had an addiction, and I went to celebrate recovery, or I went to AA, or did whatever I needed to do until a point where I felt like I graduated from my addiction. And not everybody has that experience, but for those of you who do, that's a great thing. I love it. Um, but I think that we all have a more fundamental problem in our lives, more fundamental than brain disease or addiction, uh, this, this identity of humanity, which is that we are fundamentally selfish, and you're never going to get past it. Like, you're never going to be, Paul David Tripp says, a grace graduate. Right? You're never going to get to the point where you don't need to pray constantly, where you don't need God's life um, working in you constantly. Um, we always need God to keep showing up. Uh, and, and one of the great temptations for us is to be so caught up in our world that there's no space for God in it, right? We just get caught up in the, in the physical. We forget the spiritual. Um, there's an old story about uh, a man who had grown up in church but kind of fallen away from his faith, uh, and uh, he had a, a major crisis happen in his life, and his friends came to him and said, hey, you really ought to try praying. And he said, okay. So he went to God, and he said, God, I haven't talked to you in 15 years, but if you solve this one problem, I would really appreciate it, and I promise in return, I won't talk to you for another 15 years, right? That's not how it works, right? The, the invitation is not to be a grace graduate, but be a, to be a grace dependent, to, to say, hey, um, what I need most is to find um, how I can interweave and overlap the, the physical and the spiritual God in the world in every aspect of my life, not just on the mountaintop, but also in the valley. And that's really hard because the temptation of those bubbles is really strong. By the way, I was going to call this sermon, I realize that compartmentalization is a terrible title for a sermon. I was going to call this sermon Temptation to Bubbles, but I thought that would be really, really confusing. So anyway, that's fine. Okay, that one's free. Um, I, I really believe um, that the father in the story is the hero. I mean, other than Jesus. Because the father says, hey, like I'm trying. I'm in the valley. I, I see the Savior. I believe a little bit. I'm not sure if I believe enough, but could you just help me with that? Like, I trust you, Jesus, enough that like you could help me even believe enough. You could help me to even have this faith where I get out of my secular bubble and out of my spiritual bubble, and I just live in one coherent whole life with you. And I think when we do that, when we involve the God of the mountaintops and the regular messiness of our valleys, the mute speak and the deaf hear and the demons flee, and those who are like the dead are raised, and even our little bit of faith can overcome all of our unbelief. When we are the same in the mountain or in the valley, then the kingdom comes on earth as it is in heaven. So this is the temptation for us this week. It's to divide our lives into the spiritual and into the ordinary, into these different compartments, into these different bubbles. But follow Jesus, for He will lead us not into that temptation. Thanks be to God. Amen.